Well, we are now studying the crucifixion of Christ as we are traveling the gospel according to John. We have watched as Jesus was arrested, put on trial, scourged, mocked, carried his cross up to Golgotha where he will give himself willingly to be nailed to the cross, lifted up between heaven and earth, and as one has said, lifted up between both because heaven couldn't receive him and earth didn't want him. What a humbling thought. Bearing our sins, not fitted for heaven, perfect sacrifice and earth didn't want him. For the last two weeks, I've opened with a reading from our Old Testament. And I'm just trying to show some of the Old Testament prophecies, some of the foreshadows of Christ's crucifixion. I want to do so again today. If you would start with me in Psalm 69, we will go to John 19 right after this. I think it's important you understand how much, how much of this was a fulfillment of God's Word. Psalm 69, I'd like to read verses 1 through 21, please. The Bible says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, Thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from Thee. Now we know Christ was sinless, amen? Say, well, how does that apply to Christ? Well, it could be that some of this applies to David and some of it applies to Christ, or it could be Christ became sin for us. Amen. Amen. We know that's true. Verse 6, Let not them that wait on Thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for My sake. Let not those that seek Thee be confounded for My sake, O God of Israel. Because for Thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered My face. I am become a stranger unto My brethren, and an alien unto My mother's children. For the zeal of Thine house hath eaten Me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach Thee are fallen upon Me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto Thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of Thy mercy, hear me in the truth of Thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters." Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness 
and looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Would you turn over to John chapter 19, please? We could certainly have kept reading there in Psalm 69, but we'll go ahead and read from John chapter 19. The Bible says in verse 16, Then delivered He Him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led Him away. And He bearing His cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified Him and two other with Him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Last week, we took our text from Luke chapter 23, which happens in between verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, and we'll find different details throughout the Gospels, as we'll see this morning as well. But we went over and addressed how these women were following Jesus, that they were bewailing Him and lamenting after Him, And Jesus turns and He gives them a prophecy of the judgment which was to fall upon Jerusalem as a result of their rejecting Christ as their Messiah. And Jesus turns to these ladies and He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And that message that Jesus preached to those ladies, it's still a warning to all of humanity today that those who reject Christ will rightly experience God's wrath when they die. Don't weep for the sufferings of Jesus only, but let the sinner who is without Christ weep for their sinfulness, for sinning against a holy God. It was our sinfulness that led Jesus up the hill. It was our sinfulness that uh, He gave Himself a ransom for many. And certainly it was His love for us that held Him there. We needed a perfect sacrifice. We needed perfect blood. We could never save ourselves. Only Christ could satisfy God's justice for our sin. Your only refuge is to be found in Him, but if you're not in Him, you'll have no refuge from Him when you die. There's a judgment day awaiting us. Either you will enter into the joys of your Lord because you have received Christ as your Savior, or else you will spend an eternity in hell because you have rejected Christ's free gift of salvation. And so the question last week is, what's it going to be for you? Now, that decision is up to you, amen? Preacher can't make it for you. Parents can't make it for you. Jesus won't force you. Amen. Now, as we begin today we see here in verse 18 of our text that once they arrived to the place of the skull, it says here that they crucified Him. Now, in between verses 17 and 18, we get some details from Matthew and Mark. And what we find in those gospel accounts is the fulfillment of what we just read in Psalm 69, 21. Over there, we just read, they gave me gall... They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 34, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, 
And when he, when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And in Mark 15, 23, it says, He received it not. The mixture that they were attempting to give Jesus was used as a sedative in those days. And even today, when people are put to death, when under capital punishment, they're given a sedative before they administer the capital punishment in hopes of calming them down. They're giving a tranquilizer, if you will, to make them more tranquil. This is because those who find themselves up against the hour of their death, as you might expect, would freak out. And they could go nuts and become very violent in that moment. And so for the protection of those administering it, um, they try to sedate those who are about to be put to death. And it's kind of like when a drowning man is panicking and he's taking down everyone else around him. And so even though a man being crucified had already been scourged and left half dead in that moment where he's about to be nailed to a cross, they could suddenly become violent. And it would be more difficult for the soldiers to nail them and it would perhaps be dangerous to them uh, if this person found a bunch of strength. And so they would attempt to sedate them a little bit. But we learn from Matthew and Mark that Christ refused to drink this mixture. And Christ wanted all the world to know that He's not giving Himself to the cross. He's not going through all of those agonies because He had been sedated in some medical form, but that He was willingly giving His life to this pain, that He was willingly giving Himself to the Father's will to die upon the cross. So why did He do it then? Because He loves sinners. Because He came to save sinners. He was going to fulfill His Father's will, and in so doing, He was going to drink every drop of the cup that He had been sent here to drink. Jesus experienced all of this pain without any medical assistance. The Bible says He was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the sufferings of death. And in so doing, the Bible says He tasted death for every man. And the captain of our salvation was made perfect or complete through His sufferings. The Bible says in Hebrews 5.9, Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. And so Jesus, having refused this mixture of vinegar and gall, then He was crucified. And all four gospels, gospel accounts make the point of saying Jesus was crucified. And that's all we get. There's no further details. There's no explanations as far as to what takes place in a crucifixion. And maybe it's because it wasn't needed. Maybe it's because there's certain things we just don't need. I don't know. But crucifixion in those days, it was the means of Rome's capital punishment. And being commonplace during these accounts when they were written... Everybody who read it would have understood what it meant to be crucified. So maybe there was no need to describe all that would take place during a crucifixion. And believe it or not, there are still some countries that it's legal to crucify. 
Some, they kind of do it a lot different than the Romans did. For example, in the Middle East, you'll find in some Islamic countries that after a, after a person has been beheaded, they'll nail them to a cross on display for all to see. And so some will still crucify without the beheading part, but it is very rare. And certainly where we live, we have really no concept of just what crucifixion was, just how painful this was. But overall, these agonies are something that I think we just kind of glaze over because we read, and he was crucified. But, but what does that mean? How many people know? I know a lot of you do, but how many people understand out there what all this entailed? And I'm not sure we can fully grasp the immense pain that someone would go through in a crucifixion. It was literally torture. But for just a moment this morning, I want to try to elaborate on this in case there are those who are unfamiliar with the Roman form of crucifixion. And we're only going to hit the highlights because there's a lot we could get into when you start talking medically. So I'm just going to hit some of the main points here, and you can talk to me afterwards if you want. But crucifixion was one of the most cruelest forms of execution ever invented. First century Jewish historian Josephus records during the crucifixions that took place in the siege of Jerusalem in 66 through 70 AD, that crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. And it's been said that crucifixion is quite possibly the most painful death ever invented by mankind. Our English word for excruciating comes from crucifixion. It is derived from a Latin word, excruciatus, and when broken down, it can literally be interpreted the overwhelmingly intense pain of the cross. Excruciating. The crucifixion was such a merciless death that the Romans would not even crucify other Romans. The only exception would be if they had permission from the emperor himself. And it would have to be something crazy that they did to deserve crucifixion. Secular history tells us Peter was crucified, albeit he requested to be crucified upside down. Nonetheless, he was crucified, while the Apostle Paul was only beheaded. <laughs> only. Paul was a Roman citizen, and you wouldn't crucify Roman citizens. Crucifixions took place outside of the city, but that wasn't to try to hide it. Crucifixions took place outside of the city on a main thoroughfare so that people could see these bodies and be warned not to do the same thing, which is why you find the, the crime written above the head of what they did. In Jesus' case, this is the king of the Jews. And so they would crucify them out there on 5th Street, if you will, and they would make sure that those coming into the city would be able to see these crucifixions that were taking place as a deterrent to would-be criminals. But as we've already covered, Roman crucifixions, they were always preceded by this brutal flogging that took place. And then the condemned had to carry his own cross up the hill to where they would be crucified or to the place they'd be crucified. In Jerusalem, it was a little bald hill, kind of looked like a skull. It's called the place of the skull. Calvary talks, the meaning of it is like the cranium. And so it's all about a skull. 
Golgotha, same thing. And so they're all used interchangeably. But once there, the one being crucified would be stripped naked. And as we would see further in this chapter, once Jesus is raised up, the soldiers are taking his garments and they are dividing them among themselves. Clothes were a big deal back then. And part of the reward of these soldiers would be getting the clothes of the ones that were being crucified. And after being stripped, Jesus would have been laid upon the cross. And as the Greek word crucified means, they would impale Him to the cross. They would stretch out their arms and drive large iron nails or spikes that were several inches in length through each hand. Probably meaning the area just past the hand in the wrist. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but the ulna and radius bones. In the Bible, you'll find the word for hand used to describe the wrist. So there's no contradiction here in case you're wondering. When Peter was in jail and the angel of the Lord came to free him, the Bible says that the chains fell off of his hands. And the Bible talks about Rebecca having bracelets on her hands. And so the area around the wrist are still considered biblically part of the hand area. Not to mention there have been tests done where people who had already passed had been nailed to a cross and their weight could not be held up from the hand without it tearing through. And so in order to support the weight, it is believed that they would drive the nail just above the hand between those two bones in your forearm in order to hold all that weight. In addition, in John 19.3, where we read about the soldiers smiting Jesus with the palm of their hands, that Greek word is different than the Greek word after Jesus resurrects, and the Bible says He shows them His hands. And so I believe it was probably further than just in the palm of the hand. Most people believe that the wrist area would have been pierced because the Bible says not one bone of Jesus was broken. But does piercing a bone mean the same as breaking a bone? Because what did they do with his feet? He, they pierced his hands and his feet, Psalm twenty-two sixteen says. So the Greek word for broken, just to kind of chase that down, it means to crush, to rend in pieces, and to crack apart. So it makes sense to me that you could pierce a bone and not necessarily break the bone. At least not break it in pieces. And I've read that perhaps a tapered nail being driven through certain parts of the feet would separate bones as it drove through, not necessarily pierce them. And I found all kind of theories out there, but I think we have tried way too hard to find a way not to say, to find a way to say that his bones weren't pierced. But I believe, in fact, it was driven through his ankle bones. Um, archaeologists have discovered a crucified foot, um, remains, I should say, of a crucified body, the foot still nailed to a piece of wood, and it, they drove it through the ankle bones. Not to mention the Romans, listen, they specialized in making crucifixion as painful as possible. And um, whatever the case, I can tell you from personal experience now that you can spend hours researching all of this and you won't be any closer to a satisfactory answer than when you began. <laughs> Amen. Since the Bible doesn't explicitly say, I'll leave it at that. You can examine it for yourself and you can get in all kinds of things. How many nails and all the rest. Anyway, once fastened to the cross, Jesus would have been lifted up. The vertical beam would have been dropped into the hole that they would use uh, time and again. And the jarring from that beam would dislocate the shoulders, having been stretched out, weakened, and then jolted. Your shoulders would dislocate. Uh, 
as you hung on the cross even longer and you weakened further, um, your elbows would dislocate and all kind of bones would become out of joint. The Bible says in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Some suggest that in those days, the vertical post was actually in the ground all the time and that all that the condemned carried was the horizontal beam and they would nail them to that, then raise them up and affix them to the vertical beam. I don't know. But listen, you'll drive yourself nuts trying to figure all this out. There's all kind of speculation out there and it will drive you crazy. Anyway, don't picture these high crosses where Jesus is, you know, 15, 20 feet off the ground. These were very low to the ground. The feet would have been barely off the uh, ground. And you would have been right there looking almost face to face with them. And you could interact as, as we see Jesus speaking several times from the cross. And so those artist paintings that you see, most of them are completely inaccurate. But what do we expect? Now, having been severely scourged, having been nailed to a cross and lifted up, there you waited to die. Some died more quickly than others, but it is recorded that some lived several days upon the cross before they would die. And the Romans delighted in making this as painful for as long as they could. The most common cause of death from crucifixion was asphyxiation. I have a hard time saying that, so I'll say suffocation. But there were so many ways that pain was being felt that it's probably impossible to cover it all in this setting, but I came across these dizziness, cramps, severe thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus from bacterial infection. I guess that's lockjaw or where the muscles lock up. Um, your unattended wounds would continually be intensified, especially in the heat, in the sun, and it would become inflamed, and gangrene would slowly begin to set in. There would be brain damage from a lack of oxygen. The entire nervous system is under attack, causing convulsions. The arteries of the head and the stomach became swollen and oppressed with surcharge of blood. Birds would come and pick away at the bodies. It's been said that they died a thousand deaths. Death could come through many ways, such as heart failure, brain damage, but most often it was suffocation. Being stretched out and then having bones dislocate, you began to sink down. And the combination of that causes such a pressure on your chest cavity that it's difficult to breathe. You struggle just to get oxygen. But the Romans would put people in such a position that it would enable them to get breath. And so when they nailed the feet to the cross, they would keep the knees bent so that you could raise up a little bit and try to draw some breath. But can you imagine the pain that would be experienced by trying to raise yourself up with hands that are pierced, with feet that are pierced, with bones that are out of joint, and all the other pain associated with that, just to draw a breath, and your body has a natural instinct to breathe. I don't think any of you woke up saying, okay, time to breathe. And so just naturally, you're going through this pain because you're trying to draw a breath. And eventually, you could no longer raise yourself up any further, and you would just die by suffocating. 
This is why when they wanted to hasten death, as we'll see later in this chapter, and in, in this case, it's Passover, and being a high holy day, the Jews wanted the bodies off the cross, and so the Romans would take an iron club, and they would pulverize the leg bones of the individual hanging on the cross so that they could in no way lift up to get air, and they would die within just a matter of minutes in those cases. On top of that, and, and this is what I cannot wrap my head around, not only is that a horrific way to die, but Jesus was bearing our sin. The sin of all the world. I don't know what that means. I don't know what kind of pain that would be. But could you, I mean, just think of all that Jesus is going through on the cross. And so when you read John chapter 19, verses 17 and 18 here, where He bears His cross to the place of the skull, and they crucify Him, there's a lot that's taking place right there. Don't just glaze over it, but try to, try to get into what that means and what they're going through and get a hold of what this one little word crucify really means. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Behold the man as they drive the nails into his hands and feet. Look up, repenting sinners, and see the sorrowful image of your suffering Lord. Mark him as the ruby drops stained on the thorn crown and adorned with priceless gems the diadem of the king of misery. Behold the man when all his bones are out of joint and he is poured out like water and brought into the dust of death. God hath forsaken him. Hell hath compassed him about. Behold and see, was there ever sorrow like unto his sorrow that is done unto him? All ye that pass by, draw near and look upon this spectacle of grief, unique, unparalleled, a wonder to men and angels, a prodigy unmatched. Behold the emperor of woe who had no equal or rival in his agonies. We have only to sit more continually at the cross foot to be less troubled with our doubts and our woes. We have but to see His sorrows and our sorrows we shall be ashamed to even mention. We have but to gaze into His wounds and heal our own. If we would live aright, it must be by the contemplation of His death. If we would rise to dignity, it must be by considering His humiliation and sorrow." End quote. And so, have you taken time to view Christ on the cross? When's the last time? Do you view the cross and do you see your suffering Savior? Do you behold the man? Do you behold the King? Have you seen Jesus on the cross as your perfect sacrifice? Put your name in there, amen? Make it personal. Oh, there's the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. How about for world you put your name? Make it personal. View the cross more frequently, and I think you'll live more righteously. Now, with the time we have, I want to try to communicate the significance of Christ being crucified. And if you'll get a hold of this, it'll help you. It'll help you as you proclaim the gospel. It may help some who are struggling with what I'm about to address. People always seem to be worried about one question. This comes up so often. Maybe you've asked it in times past. Maybe you're still asking it today. People are constantly trying to comprehend God's love in contrast to His wrath. And how many times have you heard it said, 
How can a loving God allow people to go to hell? We've probably all heard that from someone, if not even said it ourselves. You know, the Bible doesn't ask that question. It doesn't have to. The answer is so obvious biblically. There's no reason to even address God's love. If you don't understand that God loves by what I just communicated to you about the crucifixion, you're never going to understand God's love. The very fact that God would come in the flesh and lay down His life for you and suffer the way in which He did, if that doesn't prove God's love, then what does? And so listen, it's not a question about is God loving? He died for you. Who else has done that? And He died while you were a sinner. Look, don't ever just go off with this question, how can a loving God let people go to hell? Don't you question God's love. So that's not the question. The issue is not trying to vindicate God's love in relation to God's wrath. But rather the issue is, how can God save sinners and allow them into heaven? That's the question. Because God who is just must punish sin. How is it you can be forgiven not having your sins punished and enter into the glories of heaven? In the presence of God for all... How, are you, how is God able to do that and still be just? And so we see, God's love is not the issue. Period. So we have it all backwards. When we continue to ask such questions, how can a loving God allow people to go to hell? But we have to turn that around. And we have to honestly ask the question, how is it that God, who is perfectly just and must punish sin, how is it that He can forgive me? The Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 3. Go there with me, please. I'd like you to see this and get a hold of it. Romans chapter 3. We'll read verses 23 through 26. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And so we see what the problem is right away in verse 23, don't we? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, how is it that we who are sinners and cannot attain to God's holiness and His righteousness and meet that standard, how is it that we who are sinners can be declared righteous and holy and be forgiven? The answer is given in verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we can be justified. It can be just as if we've never sinned in the sight of God. Through God's grace, because of redemption, which is only through Christ Jesus our Lord, we can have this. Now how is this possible? How is it that those who are sinners and have fallen short of God's glory be justified in Christ 
and God still be just, still be the judge? Well, the answer is in verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And this is telling us when it says, Whom God has set forth, God made Christ a public exhibit. He's crucified in the open. He's crucified where everyone can see. God is making this known to the world for all to see. Everybody can see this taking place. It's an exhibit. But to see what? To see that God set forth Christ to be a propitiation. And and understanding that word brings this passage to life for you. When you understand propitiation, meaning that God had Christ to be the means by which God's punishment against sinners could be satisfied. Christ appeased God's wrath by taking God's wrath for you and I. He was a propitiation. We could never save ourselves. We needed somebody greater than us. We needed somebody whose blood was perfect. And only God Himself could meet that requirement. But there would be one condition placed upon the sinner to have their sins forgiven and be justified in the sight of God. What's the condition? We see it here. Through faith in His blood. you got to have faith that His blood is all sufficient. This declared... His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And this is telling us, listen now, that God is righteous in removing our sins and not punishing our sinfulness like we all deserve. God was completely satisfied in Christ's sacrifice. God's wrath was poured out upon Christ so that we don't ever have to experience His wrath as His children. Whoop! We all should have shouted right there. And this is why we read in verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He, God, might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. God is still righteous in forgiving sinners and allowing them into His presence for all eternity because we have been redeemed in Christ. The penalty for our sin was paid by Jesus. He went through it all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God In Him. God's justice was satisfied when He punished His own Son. And therefore, no one can ever say that God is unjust for allowing the redeemed into heaven. Well, God, if we would turn that question around, why are you letting people into heaven? God's not unjust. His justice was still served. It was because Jesus was put on public display to die for sinners. When Christ was on the cross, it was God's way of saying to the world, 
I will not compromise my justice. I am still righteous. My acts are still pure because I can forgive the sinner because Jesus Christ took the punishment. Amen. It's no different than in the Old Testament pictured with a scapegoat. Right? Two goats brought, blood put upon the head, one let go, one killed. Jesus took our penalty and we were let free. And now God can be merciful to us who deserve nothing but His wrath. We deserve His wrath. Which is why the question should never be, why would God allow anybody to go to hell? Because we deserve it. And so we find God is merciful to us who deserve nothing but His wrath because His only begotten Son died upon the cross. Therefore, God is just and He is the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And so none of this is about whether or not God loves us enough. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not a question of God's love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this was manifested the love of God. It was manifested toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It isn't why would God allow people to go to hell. Why is it God would forgive you? Why would God allow you to enter into a relationship with Him? Why would God allow you a home in heaven? That's the question. Don't ever fall for the lie of Satan. Even his ministers are transformed into angels of light and can use fancy talk, try to get you to wonder, yeah, wait just a minute, how is it that God would allow people to go to hell? You do it by rejecting his son who took the penalty for you. So have you been justified this morning? Do you, do you know what it means to be saved? Have you seen Christ on the cross as the only remedy for your sinful condition in the sight of a holy God? God is just and He's the justifier of those who will put their faith in Jesus. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation? If not, why not now? And you have to see Him as the sacrificial Lamb that He is upon the cross. Find your refuge in Christ or there'll be no refuge from Christ. Read the Revelation. When He comes the second time, He is pouring out His wrath. But you don't have to experience God's wrath, aren't you glad? Christ already endured it for you. Put your faith in Him today. Let's pray.